I'll be good. This morning, I'm really glad you all are here, not for any other reason uh, on specifics, but that I am, uh, I am happy and full of joy to be with the body of Christ. Amen. And that, uh, that, all right, that brother that we love, and that uh, this is what it's all about. You know, obviously God is to be this focus, God is to be the center, but this here, this is community, this is uh, expressing love together, serving the same God, it's all, it's all uh, part of God's design. So this morning my message is titled, Supplementing Your Faith. It's a little different than, uh, uh, you know, my prior messages. I wanted to get a little more practical, a little more uh, working on some keys on uh, living your daily life as a Christian. My passage this morning is going to be out of 1 Peter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. But this morning I want to talk about uh, being able to change. You know, we hear the word change, you know, changing behavior, changing things about yourself. And as Christians, a lot of times, I know I do, we feel like we're not being uh, efficient. We're not being efficient and we're being unfruitful. And we don't know why. You know, we struggle with, you know, I want to do more for God and I want to accomplish things and do all these things, but we feel like we're falling short. And then another nagging issue is the behavior or uh, tendencies in our lives that we wish that we didn't have to grapple with, we didn't have to struggle with. So that's in a nutshell what I want to talk about today. This message is for those who feel ineffective and unfruitful. Across, universally, across the globe, there is a tendency in human nature that wants to be able to produce the maximum benefit while putting in the least amount of effort. <laughs> True? If your job, if you work 40 hours a week, if your job said to you, tomorrow, you are no longer working 40 hours a week, you are working 35 hours a week. But your pay remains the same. Essentially, you're getting five free hours. Would you protest? Would you say, no, that's not fair. You have to you know, decrease my pay. Or let's get extreme. They say, you only have to work 20 hours, half the 40 hours, but still make the same amount of money. I don't know anybody that would say, no thanks, I'm not interested. So we're always looking, human nature is always looking, it's just natural, it's just the way we are, looking for getting the maximum benefit with putting in the least amount of work. It just, uh, it, it drives invention, it drives innovation, so it's not necessarily always a bad thing. Um, the way it was back in the Middle Ages, I'm so glad they, they wanted to make it a simpler process of inventing the toilet. Because, you know, in the Middle Ages, God, you know, the stuff you had to do back then, and then the people in charge of moving that, you know, and taking it elsewhere. Uh, that's a great benefit for doing the least amount of work. Just press the lever, and down it goes. So, if you, uh, if humankind lives for, that's another way to look at it, humankind lives for the least painful route. If there's less pain in taking this path, then, We'll take it if it gives you the desired result. If there's a path that says, no, you have to take this path 
that gives you that desired result, but along the way it's painful, very few of us would jump at the chance to take that path. We, we, we refrain from pain. There is no better high than a shortcut, a route that you're taking, a shortcut that works, that shaved off 10, 15 minutes of your drive. It's just awesome. Oh man, you know, you avoided all the problems, all the traffic, all the headaches. Ultimately, to avoid, ultimately to avoid, uh, hold on a second here. There we go. Ultimately, to avoid pain, to avoid extra pain, we want to avoid it at all costs. We have no problem with the minimum, you know, we don't mind a problem with a little minimum pain, just don't get crazy. So since this is true about human nature, it behooves us to be aware and to avoid the temptation when it applies to being an effective and fruitful Christian. Because we do the same thing in our walk with Christ. We don't want to take that painful path to change that behavior, to grow, to change ourselves, because it's painful, but we would love the reward. We would love the benefit. So what little I can do to get that benefit. And I think that's the reason why God in his, you know, and utmost smarts and understanding knew that he couldn't put a line in the sand for people to get. Smart politician people today do the same thing. They don't put that line in the sand because then they got you trapped. Aha, so you didn't measure up to that line. And Jesus wasn't interested in that. Jesus was interested in a relationship of following him and serving him, and there isn't just some magic line because if you give someone a line, if the fee limit is 40 miles an hour, we're going to get it to 49, 50, and we're okay. 45, if the speed limit is, if the speed limit is 40, none of us would dream going 60, 65, 70. But we'll go over that line that's comfortable that the traffic is moving at, right? So we all want the line, and we want to know how far we can go to not overstep that line. So here are uh, two things that we use as Christians to help us to avoid pain. Okay. Uh, one is God loves us in spite of our situation. God just loves us. He loved us while we were sinners. Therefore, the, the hang-ups and the issues and the problem with my behavior, the problem with my uh, actions, he still loves me anyways. He still loves me anyways. Therefore, I have that forgiveness. Therefore, you need to forgive me too. You need to give me some slack, give me some grace, because Jesus does. I love that one. That's a... It's a very uh, manipulative way of looking at it. But that's a big one. So since I'm accepted and since I'm loved, I am not really demand, there's not much demand on me to change, to grow. And then the second one, well, this, the previous one, it removes responsibility on your part to change anything about yourself. And then the next one is, uh, Oh, here we go. I skipped a part. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, he wrote this, love may forgive all infirmities, and when he uses the word infirmities, it's not just sickness, but anything, behavior, uh, the way people act, injustice, injustice, whatever. Love may forgive all infirmities, and love still in spite of them, but love, in a capital L, cannot cease to will their removal. So 
So love may cover all those things. Love may cover a multitude of sins, but also love demands change. Love wants to remove the plank in your eye you know, while you're worrying about the speck in other people's eyes. Or here's another good one. Um, we shouldn't strive and toil because we are instructed to rest in Jesus. You know, we, we don't need to strive. We shouldn't, uh, there's a message, the bare knuckle faith. We're going to hang on and we're just going to strive and toil and, and, you know, work the fields and plow the fields. Well, there's a big movement that we should just rest in Jesus. Just let him love you. Get in your easy chair and just, just let it soak it in. Just let him love you, you know. And that rest in Jesus crowd really, really, really appeals to that human nature that we don't have to do much effort to receive, oh man, this awesome love of Christ. You know, God doesn't withhold love, you know, because we're, you know, screwed up or we're not trying to pursue things. So this is awesome. I don't have to do anything. So let's talk about this rest in Jesus crowd. We cannot be inert rocks and hope to be effective. You have to go through the process. The key is into resting is resting in the knowledge that Christ in Christ our bill is paid to rest in a certainty that everything we need is covered through our relationship with Christ that is the rest it's resting on that this changes the approach to our quest for a character to change our character to change who we are because holiness and godliness uh, uh, motivates us instead of an effort to uh, verify that we're doing is sufficient while we rest in God's, instead we rest in God's sufficiency. Instead of measuring your own sufficiency, your own sufficiency of, of your own merit and your own measuring up, you're resting on God's sufficiency. It always goes back to God. It doesn't come back to what you can't save yourself. You can't bring, give yourself salvation. This is pivotal because to the degree that we think that we can achieve a godly lifestyle apart from reliance on Christ, we eventually will become self-righteous. We'll fall into that trap of self-righteous. It's self-worth, uh, self-work, and self-identity. And all that is, you know, yucky, gobbledygook. Christianity for such people becomes a club of godly, of the godly elite. We're, we're separate from the world. We have our own clique. We have our own club, rather than a fellowship of growing and learning together. Improving the weaknesses in your life is painful and hard, but God's grace and resting on his promises gives meaning to the pain. See, that's the difference. Self-righteousness and self-worth and all the self-identity stuff that we do is painful but there's no meaning to it. At the end of the day, you're still suffering. At the end of the day, you're like, why did I go through all that crap? You know, it just wasn't worth it. But providing the way that God gives us, and now say, yes, it's painful, but there's meaning to it. There's a purpose to that pain. So this is the key. Senseless pain is not beneficial. I'm not talking about torment, abuse, uh, suffering uh, uh, awful infirmities or diseases, that's not the suffering I'm talking about. That's not the pain I'm talking about. All that should be prayed against or run away from as torment, abuse. All of those things are not applied here. The pain I'm talking about is improving your character, 
is improving you, it's fixing yourself. The pain, there's several different pains. There's a pain of admitting that you're wrong with, to God, I'm wrong, or to others. And there's the pain of addressing uncomfortable territory. Boy, uh, loving people like this, this is not my comfort zone, you know. The pain of, of doing something outside of what you are, you know, in your comfortable, comfort zone. There's the pain of sacrifice, and then there's the pain of work. The pain of work. Work in itself is painful sometimes. When all is said and done, do you truly believe that you can never get better or that you can never change that part of you that you truly dislike? That the behavior or the, uh, the you know, when something arises and your first instinct is to do this and you're like, oh, I wish I didn't do that. You know, why am I always so quick to doing the, uh, making that behavior become known? Well, I say, personally, and I have a testimony this morning, that that's nonsense. You can, through God's help, address a behavior or change a way you're thinking about something. So let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 3. They say when you're giving a message that if you don't get to the scripture within the first five minutes, that it's not going to be a good message. <laughs> so remember that. All right. Starting with verse 3. By his divine power, now let's back up a little bit. In chapter 1, I'm sorry, in 1 Peter, so the 1 Peter letter, and then there's chapters in there, um, Peter is addressing all the promises that we have received. We have received these things by accepting Lord as our life, and now we have faith in his uh, reward for us, his uh, work for us, everything. So everything we have from Christ, we possess. It's right at our fingertips. That was his first letter. So the second letter, he's now addressing the Christians who now have that faith. So he's not addressing the world. He's addressing those who understand and know that they have Christ in them and that they have the ability to possess everything that God has given to us. Nothing is limited. Nothing is lacking. So here he is starting here. So by divine power, God is giving everything we need for living a godly life. Everything. There isn't a parenthesis there except for this, or except for, you know, fixing this. It says everything. We have achieved all of this by coming to know him, the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. Those promises are awesome. Read those, study those, memorize those. I don't have a time to go into all of those, but there are promises that God has given us that are glorious. They are awesome. These are the promises that enable you, there is a key word, enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. In other words, he enables you to escape the tendency of your human nature to do the little and hope to get the maximum event to put in the littlest amount of effort to get the maximum benefit. Verse 5, in view of all this, make every effort, in other words, be diligent, be diligent to respond to God's promises. Supplement, another key word, which is the title of my message, your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, with knowledge, 
with knowledge, with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance. I like the word perseverance. And patient endurance with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. Verse 8, the more you grow like this, the more productive, another word or another way to say it, effective, the more effective you are and useful, fruitful, you will be in your knowledge, which is your mindset of the Lord Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. A lot of times when you read a Bible, you have to focus on how you read it. And so, um, for instance, when you do text messaging and someone sends you a text message, have you ever text someone who's sensitive? I got a few people like that. So they're sensitive, so if you don't write it right, they read it with a, you know, a loud voice or an accusatory tone. You know, and it's just words. It's just words. It's not how, you know, you've you, you got to slow down and read it better, you know? Well, the same way it is with the Bible. Those same people have trouble reading the Bible because they'll read this verse and says, but those who forget, who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind. They'll read that and go, oh man, you know, why is he accusing me of being short-sighted and blind? And then forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. I remembered I was cleansed, you know, but uh, th th when you read scripture, and when I read it, when I read from Peter and Paul, I try to envision him like a grandfather who, who's sitting and he's talking quietly and he's just lovingly telling you something. So you can read this as Peter saying, listen, just be, but be careful if you don't develop this, you know, you'll, you'll, we'll miss, you'll miss the boat. Short-sighted blindness, you'll miss the boat. You'll miss all that God has for you. Don't forget that you have been cleansed from your old way of thinking. The human nature of doing the least amount of work to get the maximum benefit. The beautiful part of this pursuit is the process of pain now has meaning. Trying to improve ourselves outside of this rest in God will result in zero fruit and pain that is unnecessary. Why go down the road and experience unnecessary pain? Let's, let's cut that out. It's just not worth it. <laughs> what Peter is talking about here is growth. In a nutshell, growth equals change. If you aren't growing, you aren't changing. In Peter's first letter, he is talking all about what you have now that is yours, and that, that since you are saved, and you have possession of everything that Jesus has provided you, which I have just said. We have a plant out in our front yard, and it's an uh, uh, avocado plant. So we took an avocado seed, put some toothpicks in it, put it in the water, started growing roots, and we put it in a pot. And it grew about, you know, this high. And then we put it in a bigger pot. And now it's like, as tall as Ariana, I think. It's pretty up there. And that's it. It's great. It's super dark leaves. It won't give any fruit because it's supposed to turn into a tree. But it just sits there in that pot for, who knows, a year? I don't know how long. It's been, it's been forever. It doesn't die. It doesn't wither up. It doesn't say, uh, look, I'm supposed to be a tree. If you don't want to make me a tree, I'm just not going to live. It just continues to take water, and it's just right here. It doesn't get any bigger, you know? And it's a perfect analogy. We get into a pot, and then we get to a comfortable spot, and we're right at that height, and uh, that's it. We don't, we don't want to grow, we don't change, we don't uh, adapt and address things, uh, dig deeper, or move ourselves to a bigger pot. 
And eventually, we're going to move ourselves to the ground. And then there's no limit to what God can do with us. We can produce fruit because now we're able to. We're at a su such a state of being able to produce fruit. Is avocado a fruit? Yeah. So in this chapter, he's addressing also false teachers, mainly the things you want changed in your life, but he's addressing false teachers. So this has a two-part here. When you get to the end of the chapter there, he's addressing false teachers. But being able to combat false teachers, you need to have growth in your own life to be able to combat it, to be able to come against it, to address it and ignore it. But as Peter said, you need to, with all diligence, pursue these things. So it requires our participation to change the things that you want changed. Supplement or add what you already have to what you already have received from Jesus. It is active faith, faith in action. Both ways it works. So let's unpack these uh, seven things that Peter talks about. Faith. He said initially before he started listening to these things, add to your faith. So what is that faith? There is saving faith. The faith is that it saved you. And there's multitude of scriptures about how that works. A lot of times, uh, most it's time, it's actually God giving you the faith to believe. But it's not removing and usurping your free will, but it's you or your scales, if you will, we remove from your eyes and you're able to see what Christ has done for you. And then you receive that, you accept that. And then, um, you know, these, can we just dim these just a little bit? I feel like my makeup is starting to come off my face. <laughs> Yeah, you don't turn them off, just yeah, dim them. Um, so there is saving faith, and then there is faith that without it, it is impossible to please God. Faith is not only the basis of our belief, but also the basis of our behavior. It's intertwined. Our faith is built on the Lord himself. Christ is also the model for our faith. It's easier to think of Jesus as the object of faith than to think of him actually exercising that faith. But what did he do when he carried that cross on him up that hill so they can plant it and then nail him to it? That was exercising faith. It wasn't him, he was motivated by love, but it wasn't a warm, fuzzy feeling he was feeling that day on his way to the cross. It was not. It was faith with joy he knew inside what it is that he was doing. And that is exercising faith without waiting for love to come. The fuzzy feelings of love. So here he is taking on human flesh and suffering and dying at the hands of sinful men. This is faith in action. That is our model. So, number, so now we move into the second, next one is moral excellence. This is also translated as goodness in some Bibles, virtue or moral character. To embrace the excellencies of God is to strive after them and then to express them in our lives in the glory and praise of God. Now, I use the word strive. That's another word that a lot of, a lot of people don't like because it, it implies work. And it also implies human work, which we're always trying to say, no, it can't be work. It has to be God. Don't do it. You know, only God can change you. Don't work. Don't toil. Uh, everybody's read James, right? James took care of that, but Peter takes care of it a lot too. You have faith, but I'll show you my faith by works. You have to do, you have to supplement to your faith. You have to add to it. You have to exercise it. It's like a muscle. Exercise that muscle, it gets stronger and better. 
So to embrace the excellencies of God is to strive after them and then to express them in our lives to the glory and praise of God. Let's read verse 3 again. He mentioned excellency right there. By the divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Moral excellence does not mean getting on your moral high horse. It does not mean you know better than everybody else and that you can point and accuse and, and you know, in an unloving manner, tell people where they are wrong. But it does mean takes personal responsibility for yourself. Personal responsibility. Let God deal with you, work with you in your, in your pursuit of moral excellence. If it could be summed up in a sentence, it would, be the, it would be this. Moral excellence is loving God with everything you have and loving others in the same manner that he first loved you. That's it. Morally, that is our most important job, is to love God with everything that we have. And, and that's painful. That's painful. Knowledge is the next one. And the knowledge of God is essential to our growth in Christian character and our ability to recognize and avoid those who teach what is false. So the Bible is rife with knowledge. It's full of stuff, but you can know a lot without this. You know, it's true. It's very true. I know people who have very limited knowledge of the Bible, and they are on another level spiritually. But this here is to help us as a supplement, as a supplement to your faith that you received. It helps you to understand certain things. It helps you... Uh, you know, historically see what God was doing. I remember when I was uh, 13, and I was raised in the church, so I always knew everything I thought I knew, <laughs> that you thought you knew. But I was 13, 14, and I remember having this real great experience with the Lord. Right then, I believe the Holy Spirit just came into my life. And I remember reading the New Testament, and it was just like, I've heard this story from many people leaping off the page. The words were just like alive. It was just, I couldn't, you know, stop reading. It was like, uh, uh, I remember they were saying, hey, it's time to eat, you know, from downstairs. And I was like, I'm not hungry. I just didn't want to leave it. I just didn't want to stop reading the Bible. I just, it was like the bread, you know. So that knowledge comes from the Holy Spirit being in you, and it comes with you wanting to supplement your faith. You have to work. You have to actually open this up and, and you know, open up a concordance, try to delve into it, figure it out. And, and uh, listening to other ministers speak, you know, on YouTube or on TV, Pastor Nick, uh, listening to audio on CD, whatever you do. You constantly add knowledge, constantly add and grow. Another thing, too, is don't be afraid to ask questions. Ask questions. Ask lots of questions. God, why did you do that? Or God, why did you do that? And then look to find the answers. I'm, I have so many questions that I still do not have answers to, but I keep asking them. <laughs> Paul says in uh, Romans, I believe, where did I write that? Colossians, sorry. He wrote in Colossians, he said this, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, are we not reason... I'm sorry, have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit, being fruitful for every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened 
with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. I like how Paul added that in there, joyously. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Qualified us. That's an awesome word. That's another message right there. We are qualified to join the team. We are qualified to be a part of the process. You have been qualified. Christ has redeemed you, and it's the Christ in you is the hope of that glory. Every time Jesus spoke, it was rife with knowledge. I took out one passage, but I typed in a search, Jesus speaking on knowledge, and there was like 20 passages. But here's one, Luke 24, 27. And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He had knowledge. He was filled with it. And he went through the same process as us. As a young man, um, I think by eight years old, you're supposed to know the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, verbatim. By eight years old. It could be 12, but I want to say it was eight. I mean, you had to know it. First five books, Torah, you had to know it all. And so he had to do that. He was a human just like us. And he went and studied that and learned that. And filled with that Holy Spirit, made that knowledge real and true when he spoke it. All right, next is uh, self-control. How about we just skip this one? <laughs> Let's move on to perseverance, shall we? <laughs> Living a godly life requires us to master the flesh and make it our servant rather than our master. Let's not forget, we began with the concept that we have everything we need in Christ already. Everything is there for us to possess. We can rest, and using a gambling term and a roulette, put all our chips on red. I picked red because, you know, the blood of Jesus. So we put all of our chips on red, all right? We can rest. We know that when that wheel spins, we're going to get red. So we have to have that confidence. You know, we're not talking about $10 here. We're talking about $3 million put on that red, and you could lose it on one spin of the wheel. But that confidence, you know that Christ has done everything that you need. You can confidently put all your money on red. All of it, your whole life, on red. With this in mind, we have to make it a daily choice when it comes to self-control. The world, as we all know, does not demand us, has no demand for us to live a godly moral life. It's the exact opposite. It's live as you want, live as you please. It doesn't matter, you know, all those things. So the world is so funny. It stresses that. It preaches that and wants that to people to live that way, but then revile in horror when they see the fruit of that. What is going on? Why are people behaving this way? You know, it's so short-sighted. They have scales on their eyes. They're not seeing the, uh, res the result of their preaching, of their, you know, theology. So everything is at our fingertips these days. It's instant gratification. Your way right away at Burger King. Everything is right there, you know. Uh, watching a movie is so much easier. You, know, you just have to get in the car, drive to the store, you didn't really know what you wanted to watch, so you would just take forever to go down the whole aisle. Anybody remember this? It just took forever to find a movie. Now it's right there, right there at your fingertip. Click it, search it, tell Alexa what you want. Uh, it's instant gratification these days. Did you know that there is more freedom? You are more free 
when you are practicing self-control than when you are not practicing self-control. You're just without control. There is more freedom in self-control than without. In fact, do a search if you want. Um, I know Google is bad, but do a search and ask, look for studies, and they have done numerous of studies, of course this is not reported, that those who practice self-control, abstain from sex before marriage, abstain from you know, the, all the vices, those who have practiced self-control are, on a scale compared to the other audience, way happier. Way happier. But culture today tells us to be happy, you shouldn't you know, limit yourself. Why are you limiting yourself from, you know, just do what you want, do what you please, you'll be more happy. And it's those people that are unhappy. They are trapped, they are locked up, they're in bondage. Another study says that uh, those who believe in free will, that we have free will, this is interesting. Those who believe uh, without a doubt that we have free will have the best self-control over their lives. But those who believe I am not in control, that the devil made me do it, or my dad made me do it, or my sister made me do it, or it was because I was raised in a bad home, so it's not fair, you know, my parents divorced, uh, you know, my school. Those who believe that they don't have their own free will and their own choice live with unbelievable, uncontrolled lifestyle. So this self-control is uh, key and essential for the culture that we live in, but even more so as a Christian. We, we, um, we have that human nature to do the least amount of work to get the maximum benefit. So, you know, I'm just trying to come up with an analogy like, you know, I, I can eat a whole package of Oreos. I don't need to eat just two, you know. Here's an example. <laughs> I can sit and watch all this, the Lord of the Ring movies from beginning to end, starting with The Hobbit. Just sit and watch them all, all weekend and do nothing else. You know, or maybe I should just watch one movie a month and spread it out. I don't know. Just there are certain things that are self-control, and obviously it's the lust of the flesh, the pride of your eyes, um, the things that affect us from the beginning. It's a simple world. It's very attractive, and we have to guard ourselves in self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the spirit as well, as Paul talks about. So, um, so here's my testimony. And my daughters are actually down here, so I'm going to talk about you guys. When we just had two kids, that was so long ago. <laughs> but we had just two kids, those two sweet, adoring little girls. And I come from a long line of, of uh, yelling, impatient uh, streak, a strain, a generational thing. So when they were younger, Joanne had to be two, Natty was one, just about that age. And they would get into things or do something wrong or do something I told them not to do. And I would just get so impatient, so mad, you know, I would get angry with them, you know. And it was an out-of-body experience. You know how you say all the time, I'm never going to do what my parents did, you know. It's what we, you know, evidently we do. So I'm like, I'm behaving just like my father and then his mother before him, you know, I'm just seeing this whole generational thing happening. And they're just sitting there you know, scared. They're scared. Thankfully, they don't remember it. You guys remember that? And uh, they were just scared, and they're like, they're sorry, you know? And uh, so that behavior 
was grotesque to me. I could not believe I was repeating the same thing that my generational line has done. So I remember getting in front of God and just saying, after a session with him, after a session, I'm just like, Lord, what am I doing? Why am I behaving this way? Why is it so easy for me to snap and get mad at them? Um, I need this to change. I need this to change. Lord, teach me, show me, you know, help me. And so I remember right then feeling very calm and feeling very like, okay, I will help you, but you have to do the work. That was just kind of what I, the inclination I was feeling. So I remember one night, and it, yeah, I think it was just them two, and no, 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 Melody had come along. So things were getting a little better, but Melody was coming along. So all three of them were in the bedroom, one room. We were in the townhouse. So Joey's on the top bunk, Natalie down there, and Melody's some in the crib. They took forever to get him to go to bed, right? You know, trying to get your kids to quiet down and go to bed. So I hear uh, noise and crying, like stomp upstairs, open the door. I'm like, what is going on here? Why did you guys go to bed? It's time for bed. And Joanne goes, I poured, I poured my cup of water out right onto the floor. And from the top bunk, she just poured water out. So I was like, I was like, why did you do that? You know, it was like a check right away. Why did you do that? And she goes, I don't know. And I was like, okay, that's, don't do that again, okay? And she goes, I know, it was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. She was already feeling upset. And I'm like, here I am getting so upset with them when they know what they did was wrong. And it really was a learning lesson for me. So I cleaned up the water. I gave her a kiss and uh, said goodnight. And from then, from since that time, it's so easy to have that check. It's like clear as day voice. And when they misbehave and when they say something wrong, I am calm and I'm like, I know right away, they know what they did was wrong. They know it. They're going to get their punishment, but I do not need to get uncontrolled, angry, and upset at them. And, you know, just saying that makes me a little emotional because if I know what it's like to live under that, and, and I'm not being an unforgiveness about this. It's, it's, been, it's been taken care of, and it's a lot better now with my dad. But I'm just saying I don't want to repeat that with my own kids. And all of them, I see them blossoming. I see them... Uh, I see them right away knowing that they can trust me to not lose it. And I hope that comes later, beneficial later when they start dating. <laughs> that, uh, you know, I'll be able to just to be calm. Because if they, can, if they can see me calm and not angry, they can see God the same way. Yeah. They see God as the same kind of person. But if they see me always being belligerent and mad and angry all the time, that's who God's going to be to them. You know, that's going to really, really affect them. So that is my testimony. The fruit of the Spirit is real. It can help you, but you have to do the work. You have to add to the faith that you have in Jesus. So moving on, perseverance. So recap. Faith brings us into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Moral excellence seeks the character of God as the standard and goal for our own character. Knowledge describes what God is like and what we should be like as well. Self-control enables us to curb our physical passions and to make our bodies servants of the will of God. And then perseverance enables us to persist, to persist uh, in our pursuit of godly character, even when we suffer for doing so. If self-control has to do with physical pleasures, 
perseverance has to do with pain. Our natural tendency, and I don't blame you, is to recoil from pain. We don't want pain. We don't want to have to deal with pain. But perseverance allows us to pursue because we know there's meaning in that pain. So we pursue to get to that reward, to get to the other side, if you will. It calls for us to identify with Christ, which includes identifying with him and his suffering. Here's another key. Avoiding pain not only keeps us from improving, but it will also leads us to pleasure. There is no better way to numb pain or the exact opposite of pain over here is pleasure over here. It's our human nature very quickly wants to sway over to pleasure. Eventually, it leads to addiction. And that's rife, it's evident, it's all over the place today. You will see the pleasure, instead of seeing pleasure as a reward, a reward for you know, doing work to get there, you see it as a requirement. I demand pleasure because I deserve it. I should have it, it's mine. This has to be instilled early in children, this concept, that pleasure is a reward. A reward is not a right, it's not something that you deserve. Um, Anyways, if you don't, here we go, if you don't have a vision for your life, you will waste so much time trying to get there. The Bible says those without vision perish. You have to have a vision. But, like, I don't know about you, but when I hear someone saying you need to have vision, I th immediately think work. God, you know, it means every day I got to, like, plot it out and, you know, put it in a journal and tell myself what I'm going to do today. That's what these visionaries do. They literally are devoted to, to sticking with their vision and sticking where they want to go. They give themselves a goal, and they give them a couple years to get there, and they diligently seek it and go after it. And that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Now, I love sports, so I'm going to use this as an analogy. Uh, baseball, hockey, basketball, it doesn't really apply because, one, there are super long seasons. So baseball is 162 games, basketball is 82, and eight teams get into the postseason with basketball, and baseball, not that many teams get in there. So anyways, you can kind of cruise during the season a little bit. They do it all the time. They put up a little minimal effort because as long as you stay within the crowd, and when it's time to get serious, I think it's January, February, then they get serious and start playing hard and then hopefully do well and, and win the trophy. So football I want to use because it is such a short season that you cannot, you cannot play around. You can't goof off and take an off day in football. Now we see, at least now the season has started, but prior to the season, lots and lots of hours and preparation and work goes into getting ready for the season. Now I'm a Patriots fan. So I follow that, them, obviously. But every team does this. They, they, uh, the coaches, for one, are salaried, okay? So they're not hourly. They put in easily 80 hours a week, easily, sleeping in their offices. Some of their offices have beds. Um, now, they're getting paid for this. You know, they're getting paid well to be coaches. But ever seen a coach do bad for a little while? What happened? He's out. They fire you. So. Their motivation is to keep their job and keep getting paid. So they are putting in hours and hours of time of studying and adapting and then getting their players ready and motivated and giving them a vision of this is how we're going to play our season out. 
Now, the Patriots have this great longevity of familiarity. It's the same coach, same philosophy, same system. So everybody buys into that system and get on that field and play to the best of their ability. And the guys who did not match up to the best of their ability get cut. Like, uh, they start out with 96 players, they come down to 60-something, and then they have to get down to 53 players. So almost 50 players, like if you had 100, are gone. See ya. Thanks for your try, try out, but you're out of here. It's cutthroat. I mean, it's really tough. And it's one of the last areas, sports, that actually rewards, it gives you pleasure as a reward instead of as a right. You do not get the Super Bowl trophy by coming in second, or third, or fourth, or fifth. You do not get a trophy. Only the number one team that wins the final game gets to hold that trophy and gets to rightfully say, we won this season. So uh, if you are just winging it, if you will, as a Christian, and if you're just winging it and just moving along and just uh, putting in the minimal effort, you will not be able to stand on the field and say you won the trophy. No team in football wings it. No coach who's ever been successful in football has ever been accused of being lazy or lackadaisical or you know, not doing his job. And I can name all of them, I'm not going to do that. But there's all these great coaches who suffered. They suffered. They persevered through all these endless hours. Let's go back a couple of generations. It was even worse back then. They were getting paid beans for that glory. You know, and then it became a real expensive sport. But they were getting paid nothing. A lot of these football players went back to their normal job when the football season was over went back to being welders and mechanics and stuff like that. And then they would get on that field and grueling perseverance and physical affliction and suffering for the glory to get that trophy. That is what we're called to do. I know it sounds very extreme, but unnecessary pain should be avoided at all costs. Unnecessary pain. If we are going to move and go through pain of adjusting and change and growth, you know, a tree starts out with a little tiny stem and then it just keeps growing as each ring expands and expands. Now, a tree doesn't have pain, but if that was us, that's called growing pains, you know? Another ring, the bark just stretched. You know, another ring, the bark just stretched. You know, it just keeps expanding, keeps getting bigger until it gets to its proper size. That's painful. It's a process of growth. But that growth is necessary because that tree gives us shade, it gives us oxygen, you know, it gives us air to breathe, and it gives the bird a place to lay their nest, you know, uh, or it gives us <laughs> it gives us wood for our fires. So there's a lot of purposes for that tree. So, anyways, I believe most of these players are playing for that trophy, and they're playing for the prize, they're for the reward of all the hard work. Now, not everyone wins the trophy. And that's what a lot of uh, fans are frustrated with. So they try to add an extra wild card or you know, give a team another chance to get in there so we can have a little more parity. But the, the true devoted sports people say, no, the best should be the best. You should not have someone try to backdoor in. They, they goofed around all season, they couldn't win, and now they get the chance to go in you know, just because it makes it fair. You know? Jesus is not looking for making it fair. <laughs> he already made it fair. See, that's the thing. He already died for you. He already did all the stuff that you could not do. If that's not fair, that's not fair to Jesus. But it's, it's definitely fair for us. We didn't have to do any of that. We didn't have to do any of that kind of hard work. So Jesus says we can all win and we can all get the trophy. 
we all have the ability that with his grace, we can change and we can grow. So perseverance, uh, oh, that's it for perseverance. Let's move to godliness. Godliness is the attitude of reverence which seeks to please God in all things and it desires a right relationship with both God and men, with both. Godliness brings the sanctification, sanctifying presence of God into all the experiences of life. This can translate to the word pious. Godliness is the word pious, but we all think of piety as the guy with the hand folded, you know, looking down at everybody, you know. That's not what it means. It means that it's a reverent awe of God that inspires you to say, like Isaiah, I am unclean. My, my, I am unclean to even be in your presence. But then when he was cleansed and God spoke to him, he said, here am I, send me. That's godliness. Lord, take me, send me, use me. I want to be used of you. The pain and the suffering, because you're asking me to do it, because I'm doing it to glorify you, is worth it. It is where you say to yourself in any given situation, God, what would you have me do here? And Paul uses this word almost exclusively in his letter to Timothy. I think out of 17 times he uses it, he says it 13 times to Timothy. So it really meant something, um, like in chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. I love it when a mystery, anybody like mysteries? Mystery novels, mystery movies, it's awesome. You know, you're, trying to, you're trying to, I'll be nice, sit there and we try to solve it before the end, you know, try to figure it out. This same delight we have in a mystery is also applied to trying to find out what it means to be godly and how to serve the Lord. It's a, worth, it's a pursuit that is worth it. So he says, without, contra and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. It's not a controversy. This is meant that way. Jesus designed it that way. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preaching unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. That's godliness. This mystery is revealed in Jesus. Next is brotherly love. This is understandable. We know this. It's, uh, it's another part of God's beautiful plan that we can bear another's, uh, one another's burdens. We should not do this alone. Um, it's not good for man to be alone, right from the very beginning. So obviously that meant a wife, but it also means friendships, also means uh, brothers and sisters in Christ helping us, you know. It means uh, house gathering, getting together. It means the woman's Bible study, getting together. You know, Aubrey has talked about what a benefit that is. So just be with others that believe the same way and are walking that same life with you. That is crucial, it's key, and that should always be added, added to your faith. Supplement your faith with brotherly love. Uh, come to church, go to the meetings, call in on Wednesday nights for prayer. Be a part, be a part, uh, join in. There is a love that's different for the world that is among the body. It is. There's a love of, um, you know, the no blood is, blood is thickest and stronger with your brother. There's no better, you know, better bond than with your brother and sisters than it is with the world. Obviously, we should love the world, and that's important, but there's a different love among brethren, among the body of Christ. All right. Ever notice that with the generation today, um, 
everybody's pushing these ideas and the world of ideas. They push these ideas that help people who are suffering. But when it comes time to actually meeting those people, they have contempt for those very people. Isn't that interesting? So they, they love the ideas. The ideas sound so great on paper, but when it comes to like actually being with those people, they have contempt for people. It's so backwards, you know? The, you should love the world and love people, then the ideas will address the problem. But if you're just coming up with the idea, so again, that's human nature saying, I want to give the least amount of work to hopefully get the maximum benefit. And that always shows up with unintended consequences with public policy. So this is due to many things that the world believes that way, but ultimately because they are not in possession of everything that God has given them. We should and must work together as a body that will uplift one another, be accountable to one another, and love unconditionally. Be a blessing to others, and they should be a blessing to you. And this church is very good at that. And it can be painful, I know it's the truth, being, uh, I guess where it can be painful is, you know, somebody new comes along, and they're like, you know, they're, they're new people. They're not part of the body. They're not part of us. They're not with us. You know, they're not the same people. And that shouldn't be the case, you know. That should be, I'm not saying we do that. I'm saying collectively, it always should be welcome. They should be welcomed right in as part of the body. They serve the same God. You know, they're the same, they're the same Lord of their life. They struggle with the same struggles we do. You know, we're, we're all humans. We're all people. So we have to be careful in this regard about brotherly love because we naturally want to be left alone. That's another part of human nature, really. We just want to be left alone or hang out with those who think like us and who don't bother us. <laughs> they, they don't irk us in a certain way, so those are the people we want to hang out with. You know? So we, we, need to, we need to stand against that. Peter said at the beginning that we must diligently strive to seek these things and add them to our faith. So let's end with this, love. Love, um, shouldn't that have been the first one? Let me ask you that question. So we started with faith and then worked through all these things, moral excellence, uh, perseverance, self-control, godliness, and uh, brotherly love. Shouldn't have love been the beginning you know, we always say love, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. Love is what inspires us. Love is what motivates us, so forth and so on. It's perhaps part of the faulty human nature that we like to wait for that feeling of love before we act. Now, many of us who are married know that in time and with experience that if you're always waiting for the fuzzy feeling of love to serve your spouse, you'll, you'll drop the ball. You'll drop the ball every time. Because faith, faith is an action, right? Faith is an action, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a verb. As a verb means that we need to act and not wait for love. Not wait for that fuzzy feeling of love to come onto you. So, it's impossible to please God without faith, right? It didn't say, is it impossible to please God without love? 
It says it's impossible to please God without faith. This means that this is the starting point, is to act on that faith. Love comes later. So if a soldier is on the field, and he's been trained, gone to the boot camp, and done everything, and now he's on the field, and they're ready to face the enemy, and the enemy, uh, the commander, says, charge, we're going to move forward, and it's time to attack the enemy. He doesn't have this, uh, shouldn't have this uh, conflict. Uh, no, I'm not sure if I want to go yet. I'm not sure if I want to do anything yet. They are trained to go on the, you know, on the command of go. And God commanded us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, everything, and to love the world as he has loved you in the same manner. That is a command. It's not saying, but wait until you feel that love first germinating in you and care and concern. No, he's saying, go. Do and be and do that action. Let faith be the master that makes you motivate, that be the motivator, not love. If that makes sense. Does that make sense? So, resting in Jesus, I'm going to close with this. Resting in Jesus does not mean that you don't have to do anything. Resting in Jesus means trust. It means putting all your money and everything you have on red. That he can complete this work in you. Dealing with your weaknesses has a whole new meaning when you have confidence and trust and are resting on the promise of Jesus. Agape love is not prompted by what other person is or does, but by the love rooted in what God is. That's what it is. It's rooted in what God is. It's not rooted in what that person looks, says, feels, whatever. It's, it's regardless. It is the love of God which flows through us. This person, with this knowledge, with this understanding of having everything on red, you just committed everything. You just committed everything. So therefore, what are you going to do? Uh, just walk out and live your life after you just left everything on the table? No, you're going to roll up your sleeves and you're going to get to work. You're going to supplement your faith that you're just putting on God. You just put that on Jesus. And now Jesus says, okay, let's get to work. I'm right next to you. Move in faith and believe that you can change, that your behavior can adapt, that your behavior can become what you want it to be, and that you can become effective and you can be fruitful. You will add to your faith moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and love for everyone. So this passage makes several contributions to the Christian. First, it shows that the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are not incompatible. We need not to choose one in place of the other. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are interdependent truths. Man cannot contribute to this salvation, not one speck to his own salvation. Through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. All we must do is receive it, and then even this occurs by divine grace. Just by divine grace, we are able to receive that. But once we have come to faith in Christ, we are obligated. Uh, I wouldn't say obligated. Yeah, we're obligated. We're obligated to be diligent and strive after godly character. For God has proved provided the means for life and godliness. We strive in our Christian walk 
We strive in our Christian walk because he has given us the means to attain that change. The battle in life is with yourself and with your uh, human nature. Life is about working against your weakness, uh, weakest inclinations, working against the universal human flaw of trying to get everything while doing the least amount of work. Jesus doesn't want us to say, God, what you told me, man, that just felt so good. I mean, I feel, mm, I just feel loved. I feel like I can do anything. I can do anything. I mean, I, I, I'm so ready to serve you and to just be that ambassador for Christ. Oh, man. It all sounds good. It all sounds good. And I'm sure Jesus likes it. I don't think he's some ogre. But I think Jesus would rather you say, God, I read what you told, what you said in the disciples, and you know what? I went out and I did it, and it worked. I did what you told me to do, and it worked. So instead of praising him for his great words, you gave him greater glory because you believed what he said and you acted on it. Now he's getting the glory for that. Jesus is not impressed with his preaching. I'm not impressed with my preaching. But he is impressed with your actions. He's impressed with what you do, with what he preached, with what he said. That is what he's looking for. Who here, and you may close your Bibles, who here now knows what resting means? What it means to rest in God? C.S. Lewis said, I became my own. I became my own only when I gave myself to another. Only when he gave himself to God, he was able to become his own. So he who here wants to live an effective, fruitful life for God. One that's effective and fruitful. I do. And who here understands that it requires pain? It could be painful. I gave you forewarning. There's some pain involved in the expanding and growing of our lives. But also, who here knows that that pain has meaning? There is a purpose. There is a trophy. There is something that you will get for running that race and receiving that prize. If that is you, if you want to be that effective, effective, fruitful Christian, then let's stand to our feet. <clears throat> Thank you, Jesus.